select a new president. Some commentators are calling this one of the most important events in recent history. For the outcome will affect not just the future direction of the United States, but of course being the strongest nation in the world, probably the only real superpower, it will affect the whole direction of the nations of the whole world. As you will know, the result of the election is still too close to call and we'll have to wait until Wednesday or a lot longer if what happened last time happens again to discover who's going to be elected, whether George Bush or John Kerry and we need to pray for God's will to be done. Whether this election does turn out to be one of the most important of all in recent history anyway, only time will tell. And how this event will rank with previous important events in world history, again, who knows? However, what I can say with absolute certainty is that neither this event nor any previous event is the most important event in human history. Now, that event took place almost 2,000 years ago outside the city of Jerusalem in Israel. And the outcome of that crucial event hinged on a decision taken some hours previously in a garden. This decision was not taken by a vast electorate, but by one single man. And as he wrestled with the choices that he faced, the outcome was no foregone conclusion, but one over which he literally agonised. So much so that one record of his life describes him as sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. And today we continue our series that we began right in the beginning of the year, series we've called Following Jesus, from the account of Jesus written by another man, a man named Mark. And I want to look at what I would describe as the most important decision ever taken. And you will need a Bible in front of you, it's Mark 14, and verses 32 to 52. Uh, Pip, if you know the Bible well, she must have learnt it by heart, she recited almost word for word 20 verses. So we don't need to read it again, it will help to have it in front of you though, as we look at it. If you can't see a Bible, just ask someone to pass one to you. And as we look at these verses together, I want to focus on the different people involved in the drama. I've chosen three headings, I borrowed them, as most preachers borrow most things, from a little book written by the uh, evangelist John Blanchard. A little book written for Christians, my edition is about 40 years old, I think it may still be in print, it's called Read, Mark, Learn, a study of Mark's Gospel for New Christians. If it's still available and you're a new Christian, you would do well to get a copy. It lasts about 30 days, I think, for a month. Here's the first word I want to focus on. And it's the word willingness. And the person in focus is Jesus. After celebrating that meal together, which Christians have come to call the Lord's Supper, Jesus and the remaining 11 disciples, Judas has already left for reasons which will soon become apparent, Jesus and the 11 leave the walled city of Jerusalem. They head eastward across the Kidron Valley to the lower slopes of the Mount of Olives, an area which, as the name suggests, was covered with olive trees and groves. Unlike a city like Edinburgh, if you go on the top of Blackford Hill near where we live, it's a lovely spot and you can look over Edinburgh. The wonderful thing about Edinburgh is it's dotted with greenery everywhere. It's not all been consumed by houses. The wall city of Jerusalem was not like that. 
No cultivation was permitted within the walls. Not just for reasons of space, but because the Jews believed that the use of dung or fertilizers was banned within the sacred precincts. However, outside the city wall, if you can imagine it, if you've been to Israel, it's still lots of it's pretty much the same. Uh, wealthy landowners had estates outside the walls. And one of them, who was presumably favourably inclined towards Jesus, had regularly loaned him the use of his property in the past, a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane simply means olive press. The place where you press olives. Most of us have, I've lived in Nigeria in a mud house with an olive tree right in the background, a huge big olive tree. And they used to go and shake all the olives down and then they press them. Gethsemane means olive press. It's commonly referred to as the Garden of Gethsemane. It was in a garden, the first garden in human history, the Garden of Eden, that things went so disastrously wrong for the human race. And now in another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, what went wrong is about to be put right. But at great cost. Blood, sweat, tears. As Jesus anticipates what he must shortly face, he is filled with horror conveyed by the strong words used to describe his emotional state. Look at verse 33. Mark describes him with two words, as being deeply distressed and troubled. One commentator says, the word translated deeply distressed conveys, I quote, shuddering horror in the face of the dreadful prospect before him. The word troubled means to be in anguish when faced with an inescapable horror with no help all comfort available. And the prospect is so terrible that Jesus says in verse 34, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. Jesus is no superman who is absolved from the sufferings of this life. No, in every way, mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, he is one of us. And nowhere do you see this more graphically than in this story. It's almost impossible to, to grasp what he went through, what he faced. So what was it that evoked such emotional anguish in the heart of Jesus? What was it that was so horrific that he prayed, if possible, that this hour might be taken from him? What was the reason for his reaction? You get tired of preachers mentioning this, but most of you know a few months ago, there was a huge publicity and controversy about Mel Gibson's film The Passion of the Christ which depicted the final earthly hours of Jesus leading up to his crucifixion I am one of the few Christians who has not seen the film although I'm aware of many Christians and non-Christians who did and were very moved by it I have no objection in principle to the film but I was reluctant to watch it if for no other reason than a natural abhorrence in watching the agony and suffering of someone that you love. And while the film, like other artistic mediums, is a legitimate way to depict the suffering, crucifixion of Jesus, it also has its limitations. In particular, it is impossible to convey, on film, the worst of the sufferings of Jesus, which were not physical. Terrible though that was. After all, the Romans at this time in history had crucified literally thousands of Jews in a similar way. 
and justifiably. No, it was not the prospect of physical suffering, <coughs> terrible though that was, or the humiliation that would accompany it that caused Jesus to shrink back in horror from the cross. No, it was something more, something worse. And the clue lies in the words recorded in the prayer that Jesus prayed. And in particular, will you notice the word cup? Abba Father, he said, verse 36, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Now, if I said the word cup to you in normal context, you'd think it was something that you just drink from, that you have your tea or coffee in. If I said to a sporting person and talked about the cup, they would think it was something to do with an award for winning something. However, when Jesus uses the word, he uses it as a Jew, one who is familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures. And if you want to get a concordance out, or if you've got one of these wonderful palm pilots that people have a notice in church these days, you can just look it up now. Well, don't do it now, but... Uh, if you look at the word cut in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, you'll find in numerous occasions it has the same meaning again and again and again. It is shorthand for the cup of God's wrath against sinners. The cup of God's wrath against sinners. Let me just quote a couple of examples. First of all, from the Psalms. Psalm 75, verse 8. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out on, and all the wicked of the earth drink from its very dregs. Or listen to the word of the Lord spoken against the nations through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 25, 15. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink from it. And Jesus sees as he kneels in Gethsemane, as he prays, he sees that it is this cup, the cup of God's wrath, his just response to sinners and sin against every human being for all of sin that he must drink by dying on a cross. In an older commentary, C.V. Cranfield writes, in his identification with sinful men, he is the object of the holy wrath of God against sin. And in Gethsemane, as the hour of the passion approaches, the full horror of that wrath is disclosed. No wonder then his reaction when faced with that prospect. And no wonder then his request, his prayer request to his father. As instead of the normal posture for a Jew when you pray, which is to stand with your hands raised, he falls prostrate to the ground. And he makes this request to his father. Abba, father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Throughout his earthly life, Jesus had addressed God as his Father. I wasn't totally unfamiliar to the Jews. What would have been unthinkable was the word that he used. He used an Aramaic word, which is probably his mother tongue, the word Abba, which is the word a child uses to a father. Most pious Jews would have regarded that as irreverence at best, and blasphemy at worst. Yet Jesus regularly used it. He taught his disciples to pray. When you pray, say, Abba, in heaven, our Father. And so here in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he prays, he addresses his Father with the same term. And the word Abba communicates that he is assured of God's love. Not only that, he is also assured of his Father's power. He says, 
everything is possible for you. Now, notice the two assurances. When you're praying for something, maybe this morning, maybe you've got something really strong on your heart and you're seeking God and you want God to answer. There are two things you need to know, are there not? First of all, that God loves you. And second, that he's able to help you. And surely, you say to yourself, if God loves me, if God has the power to help me, then surely he will do what I ask. But Jesus recognises, and if he did, how much more should we when we pray? He recognises that it is possible that his Father's will may be different. And so he submits to it. Yes, he is assured of his Father's love, assured of his Father's power, but he's submissive to his Father's will. But what he says, yet not what I will, but what you will. Three times he asked the same prayer. Three times he gets the same answer. The Father's answer. In fulfilment of all that was prophesied in the past, he must face the hour and drink the cup. Those strange words, you imagine a Jew for 600 years, the Jews reading Isaiah 53 and wondering, what's it all about? How can the Lord save his servant? Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Isaiah 53, 10. Yes, now it becomes clear. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer so that we might never have to suffer. For him to experience God's wrath so that we might know God's blessing and favour. There was no other way. And it is vital that we understand this. I kicked out about 10% of this sermon you'll be grateful to know uh, last night as I was thinking about it because there's a huge controversy about this very issue in evangelicalism in Britain at the present time if, you, if you've heard about it and want information speak to me or send me an email I don't have time to deal with it but it's more important you understand the positive message what the Bible teaches here the father's answer to the son's request is no and it was to the father's will that the son finally submits after praying three times now notice carefully the words, the son's response. He returns to the disciples, finds them sleeping again. Listen what he says. Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Now, notice the word enough. The word may simply indicate enough of sleeping. We need to get on with what's going to happen in a few moments. However, it can mean something different as well. The word translated enough can mean the time is up, the bill is paid and settled. Donald English in the Bible Speaks Today series on Mark writes, the word enough can have the meaning the bill is paid. As though there in the Garden of Gethsemane everything was finally established. What had been settled in prayer would be carried out in life, in death. You get the point? Although the trial, the torture, the crucifixion still lie ahead in the following hours, the real battle is fought and won here in prayer, as are all our battles. And from now on there is no more emotional turmoil. In all the hubbub and the trial and the crowd and the dark night and all that follows, there is only one person who stands serene in the midst of it all, that is the Son of God. 
in contrast to his followers who were totally unprepared as we turn to a second word in the second group of people not willingness but weakness on the part of the disciples it's a very significant and moving fact that in his real humanity and we'll never understand the relationship as the song we sang at the beginning oh what a mystery meekness and majesty how can the man who is God be the both man and God but it's a sign of the real humanity of Jesus that he invites his disciples to come with him in this most terrible moment that he faces and then he chooses these three privileged disciples Peter, James and John to stay here and keep watch verse 34 the word watch translated there to keep watch is it's a lovely it's a lovely Greek word it's the, it's the Greek well I'll tell you what it is and then you'll recognise it maybe it's the word Gregorio from which we get the name Gregory if anyone here is called Gregory it means stay awake looking around there aren't many Gregories now it means to be awake to be vigilant to be alert for danger and the danger that Jesus wants his disciples to guard against is not the approach of those sent to arrest him, important though that is. Rather, he is urging them to stay alert against spiritual attack. And that is emphasised the second time when he comes back and he finds them sleeping. Notice how he addresses Peter. He calls him Simon. Simon was his original name. You remember when Jesus first met him, he said, You are Simon, son of John, Jonah. You will no longer be called Simon, you'll be called Peter. I know what Peter means, it's my own name, it means rocky. Steadfast, firm. So he says to Peter, not rocky because he isn't, <laughs> he's sleepy. He says, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch and pray for one hour? Watch and pray so that you'll not fall into temptation. It's a sad fact that in the hour of his greatest need, those Jesus looks to for support to pray with him and for him, fall asleep. The disciples fail to keep watch. And it is particularly ironic with these three disciples, if, if you've been following this series in John, or doing it in our small groups, in our fellowship groups. It's very significant. You remember James and John were the two disciples who wanted the best seats in heaven, and Jesus said to them, you remember what he said? And you stood it in Mark 10. He said, can you drink the cup that I will drink? Notice the words. Can you be baptised with the baptism I am to be baptised with? And they said, we can. And just an hour or two before, Peter had, note the words, insisted emphatically when Jesus said, you're all going to desert me. He said, even if I have to die with you, I'll never disown you. Now these three can't even stay awake for one hour. Pray with their master. However, their problem is not just self-reliance, serious though that is, for them and for us. Rather, it's something more serious and fundamental, indicated by the statement of Jesus. It's a very well-known statement in verse 38. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. In the old version, we used to say, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Flesh, body, whatever you want to call it. The important word is not the flesh or body, that's clear enough. It's the word spirit. It can mean a contrast Maybe most of us think of it in this way. It's a contrast between human spirit and intention and the physical body. The disciples really want to stay awake and support Jesus, but at the end of a very long day, it's probably near midnight now, they just can't keep their eyes open. They want to. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. However, 
I think it's far more likely that the word has a different meaning and refers to God's spirit and the more serious reason for the disciples' failure is not just self-reliance but a lack of spirit reliance Larry Hurtado in the New International Bible Commentary on Mark takes this approach he sees a back reference to in, in Psalm 51 the psalm that David prayed when he had sinned against the Lord by committing adultery and murder he asked the Lord for forgiveness for restoration, renewal and then he says grant me a willing spirit to sustain me Psalm 51 verse 12 I think it is and Larry Hurtado writes the meaning has nothing to do with the human spirit versus human flesh rather the contrast involves God's spirit who is willing to supply strength to support human weakness to make this clearer, the New International Version translation should have capitalised spirit. The disciples are far too overconfident and self-reliant to realise that the only way in which they can resist temptation and the tempter is dependence upon God's Holy Spirit. And their misguided self-reliance is fully exposed in all that follows as Judas arrives with his armed mob on the scene. The disciples fail to keep watch and so they are literally caught napping. Jesus is seized and arrested following this brief skirmish when one of them, we learn in another gospel, it's Peter who does it, not surprisingly, who chops off the ear of the servant of the high priest and Jesus heals him. But following that brief skirmish, all the disciples flee. Verse 5, then everyone deserted him and fled. As Jesus had predicted, as Zechariah the prophet had prophesied. Remember? Verse 27, you will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. There's a lot of speculation about the closing two verses, 51 and 52, about the identity of this young man. Only Mark tells us this incident about the young man who runs away naked with his cloak grabbed off him. The most popular suggestion is that this is Mark himself. Uh, we learn from the book of Acts. Remember in Acts 12, when Peter was put in prison, uh, we learn that the disciples regularly met in the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark. And many people believe the Last Supper took place in this same home. And that Mark maybe was a young boy and he was kind of listening into what was happening. And when Jesus and his disciples left, he decided to follow along behind. And as they fled away, he too ran and got caught. We don't know that. It's a nice story. And if it happened, well, it happened. There's all sorts of speculation. The word for the cloak there is of, of a very expensive garment and people have speculated the same word used of the garment that Jesus' body is wrapped in in the resurrection. I won't go into all the speculation. It's probably not helpful. But it probably may well be a fulfilment of another prophecy as well. The book of Amos prophesied, even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. You see here there are no brave warriors. Only terrified disciples. In the hour of his greatest need, Everyone deserts Jesus and flees. Now, even the most liberal critics of the Gospels, you will find people, not too far from here probably, who teach that the Gospels, these stories didn't really happen, they were invented by the early church. Okay, when you come to this story, you imagine you're a member of the early church and you write a story that totally discredits all the leading apostles. Would you write a story like that? No, this has the ring of truth about it. Not only about the disciples, but also about every would-be disciple of Jesus. So, let's, let's come to the point now. That's the background. What about me? What about you? How many of us have said we will never fall away, we'll never deny Jesus, and we'll never desert him? 
that we'll always stay watchful and alert and prayerful and we'll never fall into temptation. And how many of us have proved that pride comes before a fall? As the Apostle Paul said to Christians in Corinth, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful in case you fall. We're in a spiritual battle, friends. If you're a Christian, it's not a game. It's a battle. If our Saviour wrestled in prayer and struggled against the tempter and temptation, why do you think you're going to be exempt from it and get through it without any problem at all? He says we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against prince, the Apostle Paul asked, the Christians in Ephesus. We wrestle not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual force of evil in the heavenly realms and we need to put on the full armour of God, Ephesians 6, so that when the day of evil comes you may be able to stand and having done everything to stand and then he concludes that section remember in Ephesians 6 verse 18 and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests with this in mind stay awake, be alert always keep on praying for all the saints now let's pause here maybe there's a message here for someone who is overconfident and you're saying well that's a good message for some Christians I know but not me I'm a strong Christian and I know these Christians who fall into sin and believe me that kind of thing could just never happen to me well it may not happen exactly like that see it's very easy to point to other Christians who fall into sin especially if that sin is not a sin that you struggle with but the tempter knows that he knows the areas that you do struggle with he knows you'll be setting sins and mine only too well And unless you're on guard, they'll get to you. But maybe it's a message here this morning for someone, and you don't need me to tell you that because you're there. Or you've fallen away. You've deserted Jesus. You've denied him. Been too embarrassed to stand up for him. Maybe you've fallen into sin. And the thing you thought you never would do, you've done. And you're here in Charlotte Chapel this morning, you think, I need to get out of here. I'm not fit to be among these good folk. Believe me, there are no good folk. Only sinners saved by grace were seeking to stay on guard, to be alert, knowing that the Spirit is willing to help you. But the flesh is weak. And only in dependence upon God and His power have you any hope. Now, hidden in this story, did you notice it? Way back when Jesus said to them, you'll all fall away, you'll desert me. There are these wonderful words, the promise of Jesus, the risen Jesus, resurrection hope. But after I've risen, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee. I wonder how many of them remembered that. Yeah, we all deserted him. Did you remember? Didn't he say that he would go ahead of us afterwards to Galilee? Maybe there's still hope for us. See, the message is not that we fall into sin. The message is that we have a Saviour who is risen and willing to help us in our need. Now we turn to our third and final word. You ought to be able to guess it, really. Willingness, weakness, wickedness. Wickedness. Although the events surrounding the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus have been prophesied in the Scriptures, nonetheless that does not remove anyone from their own responsibility in what follows. We see human beings are responsible. The most obvious person who is responsible is Judas Iscariot himself. All sorts of theories have been propounded as to why Judas did what he did. I don't have time to mention all of them this morning. They also went last night when I cut this sermon down to size. 
But the important essential point is this. When all is said and done, the terrible fact, the simple fact, is that he deliberately betrays his Lord and Master. This is Judas. He's been with him for three years. He went out on that missionary trip and cast out demons. In the name of Christ, he did miracles. Yet he betrays his Master with a kiss. Such a terrible thing. The kiss was the normal greeting of a disciple to his rabbi. It's even worse if you know the original language in which this is written. When it says Judas kissed him, it's an intensive form of the verb to kiss. It doesn't mean he gave him a peck on the cheek and stepped back and said, Master, it means a prolonged kiss so that those arresting will be in no doubt in the dim light in the garden who they're looking for. He is fully responsible. There is also responsibility on the part of those sent to arrest Jesus, described as a crowd armed with swords and clubs. It would have included the temple guard. It would have included those sent by the Sanhedrin, the temple guard. It would also have included, John tells us, a contingent of Roman soldiers, presumably authorised by Pilate, the governor himself. Now you can say all these people are just doing their duty. And are less implicated in the crime than Judas. Maybe so, but nonetheless they're responsible. And behind them are the ones who sent them, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. The religious leaders have finally got what they wanted. Arresting Jesus without a riot. No wonder Jesus challenges them and says, Am I leading a rebellion? That you've come out to move swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts and you did not arrest me? However, notice his final words remind us that although Judas, the crowd, and the religious leaders are responsible, nonetheless, God is sovereign. And all these events are his plan that is being worked out. Notice what he says but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Not only is it true that human wickedness cannot thwart God's plans, it is also true that God even uses human wickedness to achieve his plans. That's why Paul writes, if the rulers of this world had known what they were doing, they'd never have crucified the Lord of glory. And when man did his worst, God did his best. but they were responsible. On the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter, the same Peter who deserted and denied Jesus, now restored, empowered with the Spirit, challenges the crowd about their responsibility for the death of Jesus. Notice the words he uses, Acts 2.23. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Do you see it there? God planned it. And you did it. Yet we too are implicated also in the death of Jesus. For it is for my sin and your sin that he submitted to the Father's will and went to the cross. As that hymn that we sing, that lovely modern hymn, puts it so beautifully, Stuart Townend's hymn. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice What happened among the scoffers? Was my sin held in there? 
that it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. My responsibility. Yeah. But my salvation. Through his death. But my final question to you this morning, I'm almost finished. Stay alert if you've followed nothing else so far. Follow this. So important. Is it your salvation? That's the question I want to conclude with. On that Thursday evening in the garden outside Jerusalem, Jesus accepted the cup the Father had placed before him. And at noon the next day, the day we call strangely Good Friday, Jesus was nailed to a cross outside Jerusalem and drank that cup, the cup of God's wrath. At three in the afternoon, he cried out in prayer. Notice what he said. Not Abba, my father, but probably for the first and only time. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Bearing our sin. Suffering the wrath of God, the sinner. And then he said, it is finished. Done. And bowed his head and died. The cup was drained to the last drop. The cup of God's wrath. The cup we deserve to drink. But there is another cup. Here's the good news. Do you remember that the disciples drank from a cup, another cup, before they left for Gethsemane? At that final Passover meal with his disciples, we read that Jesus took the cup... Passover meal, they had two or three different cups they drank from of wine. And he took this cup, he gave thanks and offered it to them and they all drank from it. Verse 23. But this is a different cup. Jesus described it and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Verse 25. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. He said to them, This is the new agreement between God and human beings. The new agreement paid in blood by Jesus anticipated here before the event as he gives it to the disciples. They probably didn't understand what he was talking about. But we do. It's the cup of the new covenant. And those who drink from this cup find forgiveness from the Father. For he's declared his son's sacrifice to be accepted by raising him from the dead. And so God's wrath is turned aside and he welcomes us into his family. But it all depends on which cup you choose to drink from. You see, there there are two cups set before us. The cup of God's wrath, which we all deserve and which we must all drink for the wages of sin is death. But there is the cup of the new covenant which Jesus offers to us. For the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6.23 And this is the theme of the Bible. From beginning to end in the old covenant I have set before you life and death, blessing, curse. Choose this day, says Moses, to the people of Israel. Now here is a new and better and final covenant. And the Lord Jesus Christ sets before us these two cups. 
And those who drink from the cup of the new covenant need not fear the cup of God's wrath. But those who reject his offer, who refuse to drink and turn from their sin and trust in Christ, then all you face is God's wrath. It's so unnecessary. And I ask you this morning, two cups, which will you choose? That is the most important decision you will ever take that I will ever take. Let's pray together.